Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Today, we are very excited to be introducing Ara. And um, so, yeah, Ara, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us how you're doing during this year of COVID. Wow, I, uh, this is actually something I've been reflecting a lot. Um, I sometimes forget how long it's been since we've been in COVID, but I guess I'm doing okay, um, as good as I can be with everything that's been going on uh, currently in America and also just like reflecting on the application cycle, which has been very traumatic. Um, this was my third time applying and I'm finally excited to say that I'm going somewhere this year. Ooh. I found a home. In that respect, I'm doing great and happy that I don't have to apply again and think about this whole GRE, but um, thank you for asking. I'm doing okay. Yeah, thank you for giving us that response. And uh, so we actually, or I actually met Ara through her channel that she co-founded with um, Emily, who we had on the last uh, podcast uh, called Psyching Out. And so through that, we've gotten to know more about your research interests and um, just your advocacy group that advocacy work that you've been doing and so um, we thought that we would just begin with telling us a bit more about your interest in addiction research. Yeah so um, my addiction research really started as my general interest in psychology and mental health so I identify as Asian. I was born in India and moved to America at the age of five and a lot of my interest stemmed from personal lived experiences through family with addiction and mental health. So um, just to kind of like go back and give like the bigger picture, my mom is the oldest of four daughters and she is the first one to come to America out of my dad's and mom's side. Um, so she got a job here and she moved and my brother, my dad and I followed after. And just being the only family that lived in America, we didn't really have a lot of social support. So there were a lot of barriers that we were dealing with as we were like, you know, first moved to America. And in terms of mental health, um, something like my mom experienced depression for a couple of years and she was left undiagnosed and without treatment for a very long time because of the stigma associated in our community. And um, there came a time point where we really needed to connect her to care and treatment. Um, and being the oldest child, I essentially had to like help navigate that healthcare space, which is very overwhelming. And although both of my parents are both speak English, um, they were very like self-conscious and self-aware of how they spoke English. So oftentimes they used me as like the middleman and to help navigated and like actions so it was that really stemmed my interest from there and being first generation immigrant it was always I asked myself okay like I'm interested in psychology so medical school makes most sense out of lawyer engineer a doctor <laughs> um going and I'm sure a lot of listeners can connect um to that story as well so Going to undergrad, I went to Rutgers, and um, which I apparently now know is an R1 research institute. Um, at the time, I thought that meant like football, like it was a <laughs> top 10 football team or something. So I went there and I was pre-med and I remained pre-med throughout my four years of undergrad. And I was doing horribly. Um, pre-med was not for me, but because of the, the kind of like 
societal expectations within the South Asian and Asian community generally, I was like, okay, like I need to go through this, do whatever I can in order to like get to the end goal. Um, so I continued to take pre-med classes, but I also came across some like psychology and public health classes, which I was really interested in and really stemmed my interest. So during uh, my freshman year, I kind of asked myself, like, I already know my GPA is not the greatest. What can I do in order to get more experience and understand this field a little bit more? Um, so I was looking for research experiences because in some of these uh, science classes, people were talking about getting like bench lab work, um, bench lab research experience. So I, knowing that I was interested in psychology and just how the brain functions and addiction, I was looking at like different research opportun opportunities within Rutgers. Um, and I came across my mentor at Rutgers. Her name is Dr. Sujismitha Ray. And she was doing um, addiction research specifically in the cocaine uh, using population. Um, so I went there and I interviewed with her and to this day I'm so thankful that she was someone who didn't ask for what my GPA was because I know sometimes um, that's a barrier for a lot of individuals to get these research experiences because they're asked what their GPA is or there's like a certain GPA requirement that they need to meet in order to be able to get accepted. Um, so that's really where my research experience started um, in undergrad. Um, I was working with her as a volunteer and over the time it expanded to an actual employment opportunity uh, while I was in school. Um, and working with the research participants in that lab really exposed me to the clinical um, population where I quickly learned the importance of getting clinical knowledge when um, dealing with participants because the research um, training is kind of limited in, at least at the time, that's what I had thought because I was not aware of clinical psych, it's kind of limited when you're really address, uh, addressing and understanding what are these different um, factors that are influencing substance use and uh, mental health care access. Um, so I continued working with her and alongside, I getting clinical experiences when, was in the back of my mind. Um, so I kept doing what I do best, going on the computer and just researching a bunch of stuff. Um, and I came across something called the CADC, which is Certified Alcohol Drug Counseling License. Um, so it's offered through New Jersey and you essentially take a bunch of courses, which are like six hours each. And you also have to do kind of like an internship where you get clinical experience. Um, I ended up getting a scholarship through New Jersey government to take these classes, which was really expensive. So I was really appreciative that I was able to receive that. And I fulfilled almost all of the courses that I took throughout my undergrad, but I ended up moving later on to New York. So that was kind of stopped there. Uh, but just to go back, I kind of jumped ahead. But um, so as I mentioned, I was taking some psych and public health classes and I really really, really started getting interested in both public health and psychology. So the intersection intersection of that, because um, from my perspective, I believe that mental health and addiction is very much of a population-based issue, um, aside from just like looking at it from individual. And I think to understand the individual influences, you really need to understand the socioeconomic demographic information, right? Like what is influencing this individual um, 
to use uh, what are like the environmental and immediate factors. Um, so that was really on in my head as I continued my undergrad and I switched to psych and public health major. Um, and while I remained pre-med, unfortunately, so my my GPA continued to get tanked um, and my public health and psych classes is what my essentially saving grace was. Um, so fast forward to um, senior year, and that's when I found out about clinical psychology. And I was like, what is this? Like, this is, this sounds interesting. This possibly sounds like a better option than medical school. Um, so I continued to do some research online because I didn't really know anyone else who had pursued that degree um, to truly understand like what exactly it takes to get into a clinical psych program um, and what experiences I would need to gain in order to gain admission. And little did I know how competitive it was. Um, like, of course, I would choose something that's more competitive than med school, right? Which um, I feel like people still don't really believe that. But when you look at the statistics, um, it is truly competitive, than, more competitive than medical school. Um, so I decided to pursue a MPH um, because I wanted to gain more experience to truly make me like an ideal candidate for this PhD program. And while I was doing my MPH program, I was working at the VA hospital at the time. So I was very lucky to gain employment right after graduation. Um, so I was working at the VA hospital and um, it was uh, like usual contract based, which my employment was dependent on the research study. And um, I gained a lot of experiences there. I worked with Dr. Rachel Yehuda, um, who's very well known in the PTSD world. And she recently is um, creating a lab with Icon School of Med to kind of study PTSD and um, incorporate psychedelic, which I'm really excited for because I do believe that the future of this field is psychedelic and virtual reality research. Um, so I was really grateful to gain that experience and my contract was ending. So I had to look for um, another research opportunity. So I found NYU and um, started working under Dr. Mario Guad, who is who does a lot of amazing research with HIV um, and HIV adherence. Um, and I one of the things I always like to emphasize is how important mentorship has played in my life because I was a first generation immigrant, I didn't know a lot of things and having these kinds of mentors who were progressive and uh, were able to guide me as to like what my next steps could be was really helpful. And uh, when I reflect on my mentorship that I received in the past, I am always thankful that they were more progressive than what the field generally is, uh, which is like a plus and a negative because I had these expectations that the psych field would be similar to how they were. But I quickly learned as I was applying to the psych program, that's not the case. Um, and not to say that it's bad, but given my public health background, I very much approach psychology with a social justice model. Um, and I believe that the psych world can definitely use a lot of that and hopefully it changes in the future. Um, so I continued to work under um, Dr. Maria Guads for a couple of years and um, my she was moving to another department. So my research um, job was ending there and I had to look for another job. And this is an experience that everyone goes through, right? Like 
they are on a research grant, their research grant is ending, now you have to find a job, uh, which, which is unfortunate. Um, so I was able to find a position at Partnership to End Addiction, which was formerly known as um, Partnership for Drug, uh, Partnership for Drug Free America. It, they've had a bunch of different names, I always forget. Um, and I worked under Dr. Fred Munch, who does a lot of addiction and EMA research. Um, so specifically using novel methodologies in the addiction space. And I was exposed to EMA and just in time here. And I really fell in love with how technology can be leveraged in the addiction space, especially making um, like interventions and treatment more accessible to a larger population and also allowing like scalability. Um, so that's pretty much like a quick overview of my experiences. Yeah, I think you pretty much just covered like the entire career section. Yeah, that was perfect. perfect. <laughs> uh, so now I can just go straight into asking about like your um, research skills, etc. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about your role as project director under uh, Dr. Munch, if I'm pronouncing Dr. that. Munch, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I'm very thankful to have had the opportunity of uh, becoming a project director because I think like ultimately every research assistant's goal is to get that title, right? And sadly in this field, titles hold a lot of value. Um, so I was project director, well, still am a project director for an NIAAA grant, which is kind of a, uh, looking into the content and timing of messages for individuals who are interested in moderating their alcohol consumption. So we, we use very much of a moderation approach um, slash like harm reduction um, to intervene indiv for individuals who are interested in moderating their alcohol. So we use ecological momentary assessment, which is EMA, and just in time, which is Jedi, as they say in the in the tech world. Um, so my role is pretty much managing and overseeing the research grant, given my mentor, Dr. Munch's um, role as president um, of the organization. His time is pretty much like limited with the research grant. So I he has given me a lot of leeway and responsibility and which was really helpful for me to learn about how research grants work from a higher level, so like admin level, so to say, where I had to really like think quickly on my feet when we had to make changes with the grant, specifically with EMA and just in time, because it's still a very, very much of a new field. Um, there's a lot of things that we're learning. One of the biggest issues that has also been addressed in literature is missing data with EMA. So just kind of like troubleshooting and thinking about better ways to ensure that we have data integrity. Um, so just to like quickly summarize or answer your question, um, my role has been pretty admin level, ensuring that we have data integrity and making sure participants are getting paid so the there's proper flow within the with the research grant and you know getting involved with a lot of like data stuff and uh and i triple like and i triple a reporting like the rppr and things like that 
Um, and then I did also want to mention alongside my role as project director, I also work as a helpline specialist for a partnership to end addiction. Um, so one of the beautiful things that this organization has is a helpline, which we offer services both digitally and on phone uh, for care uh, for caregivers and loved ones who are reaching out and support for um, someone in their life substance use. So they can reach out to us digitally or schedule a phone call. And I work on the digital side alongside um, other helpline specialists. Um, speaking of which, could you actually tell us a little more about um, what you said earlier about virtual reality and psychedelics being kind of the future in, um, I don't remember if you said addiction or PTSD specifically or both. Um, just in general in the addiction space, I think historically, in addiction, so this is an issue that I faced as I was exploring um, clinical psychology as a career. Um, as you guys know, one of the steps is to find a researcher and mentor that aligns with your interests. And oftentimes this mentor slash POI has to be part of the clinical core faculty. And there are not a lot of people doing addiction research in the clinical psych world. And I've had a lot of conversations about this actually with Emily also, um, which who was on the past uh, podcast episode, how addiction is still a little like stigmatized in the clinical psych world, right? Um, there substances such as like alcohol and like marijuana, nicotine, tobacco are like the more common commonly studied um, uh, substances in the addiction space uh, because it's a little bit more normalized, right? Um, but when it comes to harder using drugs like opioid, heroin, um, and psychedelics, it's it's still very stigmatized. So like someone who's studying that must have been like not in the norm. Um, so essentially, I do think that addiction space is moving more towards virtual reality and psychedelic because we are seeing the benefits of um, psychedelic specifically in as like treatment interventions and how it could definitely be leveraged to address a lot of mental health disorders and right what, what right. kind of um what kind of psychedelics specifically do you know are, are being used in this kind of treatment i don't know specifically, um, but for example, in PTSD, um, uh, I always get this wrong, Cyclovin? Oh, Silas, I shouldn't know this. I always say that wrong. <laughs> but, I also. Um, yeah, it's in like shrooms and some cactus. Yeah, so um, it's been shown in the literature um, for its like positive effects in PTSD, right? So in that space. Um, Do you do you think there's a correlation between PTSD and addiction? Hmm, that's a good question. If there's it's a correlation. Kind of, yeah, because it's kind of interesting that they're um, like trial running um, just like psychedelics or just using like a generally similar methodological approach. But maybe I see it as sort of similar just because I really don't know anything about this field. Um, I wonder if there's some like connection. So when you say correlation, do you mean if like the use of substances causes PTSD or um or maybe they come from like the same set of um sociodemographic factors that you mentioned earlier maybe there's an overlap in the communities who might experience PTSD and they could potentially be self-medicating with psychedelics 
Um, I feel like the research is still very much, it's still very much like an understudied area. So um, from what I know with the literature that I read, I don't think that there's like certain demographic characteristics that you can identify as having correlated with PTSD and um, hmm. cyclamen use. Right. Yeah. I also just gonna make a disclaimer that like psychedelics are not addictive. So I'm not saying that they're self-medicating with addictive substances. Yeah. And like historically, um, it's mostly been studied in animals, right? So like specifically mice. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, like in the addiction space, being able to administer um, substances within the human population, there's so many things and like loops that you have right. to jump. So um, I'm hoping that like, you know, the space is mo- moving more towards where we can have like actual experiments and clinical trials incorporating humans versus mice. Right. That makes sense. Um, could you tell us a little more about the sociodemographic factors underlying addiction? Yeah, wow. This can be like a whole <laughs> like series of episodes. This is your thesis. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, I feel like every single um, literature that is out there that addresses addiction, there's always that like demographic blurb, right? Where they're interested in looking at the demographic, dif- socio-demographic differences. I think, so is there like specifically something you want me to answer in that question? Like, are there yeah. certain? I'm, I'm thinking of um, like, do people of color or minorities um, or LGBTQ plus community, um, or does it have anything to do with any of these demographic factors or in terms of like economic inequality? Does that also underlie addiction? Um, w- generally, what are some of the predictors um, of addiction? In terms of, I feel like we can't generalize to say that, like, you know, we know for sure certain populations are more likely to use because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, there's characteristics that we've observed where certain populations have used it, but we can't necessarily say like this leads to this, right? right. Um, and I can speak in the context of like the research studies that I've worked on. So like for instance, in, in the veteran population, when I worked at the VA hospital, there were a lot of individuals self-prescribing um, in order to cope with a lot of the PTSD symptoms that they were feeling because seeking treatment or care is still very stigmatized in, in the veteran population because they they don't really do, the government doesn't really do a good job of like, kind they, they come back and they just drop them, right? And there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of homelessness rate um, with, within the uh, veteran population. And because they don't really know how to deal with, with these emotions, they don't have that social support. Um, so oftentimes they end up misusing substances or um, using substances. Um, so I can say in that with my experience working with the participants, so like sometimes a lot of them used marijuana and a lot of individuals didn't know that they used marijuana because obviously use is stigmatized. Um, and then also they were misusing a lot of prescription medication in order to deal with some of the pain symptoms that they've had uh, because of um, like combat trauma. So 
So um, in that one, and then also in at NYU, I worked on a research study which addressed HIV adherence um, in the Hispanic, Latinx, Black, African American population, and you know HIV, as we know from the literature, has been very much impacted within the the BIPOC community where treatment wasn't really accessible. Um, so Dr. Guads was really interested in looking at what have what has been the adherence practices within this population um, in within New York City. And working with these participants, a lot of them were in between shelters and oftentimes sold their uh, medication in order to um, use substances or like buy substances, right? And within this population, it was, from what I've observed, it was more likely to use like harder substances like heroin. Um, and then there's also a lot of like MSM population in there where meth is pretty common um, within that population. Um, so I think it, it varies and the literature has suggested where certain substances are common with different populations. But personally, I don't think we can say that, like, you know, because they're from that population, they're more likely to use this. Definitely agreed. And it's important yeah. to look at the environmental yeah. factors that could contribute to the underlying like bio neural mechanisms. And I hope more research goes into looking at the environmental factors rather than just focusing on the biological aspects underlying these. Yeah, and disorders. like for instance, um, the whole question about like the crack cocaine thing and mm -hmm. also with like heroin where heroin was always prevalent within um, the, the BIPOC community, but it became an issue when there were white people dying from heroin use, right? Yep. So um, I think it's also media has a lot to do with how certain substances are portrayed big time um, I think yeah and that's definitely a whole other episode as well um the drug war I, I think it's important to identify um like in terms of public health and addiction what disparities exist and what are these people not getting that the government should be providing like in terms of like social support economic um factors um, I think it's important to identify just like, you know, like what the situation is, because I personally like this, again, it's not my field, and I really don't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, so like, I guess what I'm asking is, what would what do you think should be provided to um, people, the addiction population and community? I think the general over thing that I always say is universal health care. Um, access to health care is a huge thing because even in my current role working as a helpline specialist, a lot of individuals, especially BIPOC, BIPOC communities, don't have access to health insurance. And for you to get treatment, um, if that is the route that you want to go, you need access to health care, right? Because you don't, and like granted, even with healthcare access, there's a lot of issues with uh, treatment payment. Um, so just healthcare access and housing stability. Um, so like just the basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of individuals don't have these basic needs um, catered to, right? So like housing stability, access to healthcare and access to jobs. These mm -hmm. things allow individuals to have that like stability within their life to truly address their substance use without having a housing and without having jobs, without having healthcare, 
like how can you really address those things that might contribute to their substance use, which oftentimes are the reason that they're using because there's no stability. Oh, beautifully said. I mean, yeah, I was just nodding the entire time, but people can't see me. But seriously, it's it's addiction, especially is not something that you can fix short term by just giving a drug or a specific therapy that doesn't uh, address these stability issues that is systematic, um, especially in the United States. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, sorry, oh, I was wondering, what do you think are some risk factors for addiction? If, if you think there are some. Ooh, there's like a whole list that you can say in terms of risk risk factors, but kind of going back to the public health model again, I think environment, like the environment that you grew up in and the environment that you currently live in plays a huge role um, because it kind of determines the accessibility to substances and um, just, I guess, like normalizing substance use. Um, so definitely environmental factors and also the genetics, right? Um, if you, and also tying that into environmental, so like if you grew up in an environment where your immediate social support system were using substances, that's a more normalized um, thing to do. My master's thesis was uh, prescription opioid misuse in the adolescent and young adult population. And one of the things that I found in terms of risk factors is access to prescription, right? Like especially prescription opioids it's they a lot of the times these youth and adolescents found it within their home like you know someone was prescribed because they had a surgery a couple of years ago and right. um, their parents or family members just kept it in their medicine cabinet and these kids can just go and access that and those family members don't really think about it right or sometimes it's their family members also purchasing it for them where they don't really know that they're misusing the substance um, so I think there's like various risk factors depending on like what that individual is like. Um, so, but the, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is accessibility and the environment and kind of really addressing the social factors, right? So one of the things that I'm interested in studying um, as part of my doctoral study is just like exploring like behavior change mechanisms mediated by risk and protective factors. Um, I believe that in the, in like the therapeutic setting where it's the therapist and the client sitting in front of them, there's a lot of things that you can explore and kind of understand to see what drove for that person to use substances. But I think the best way to look at what factors mediated that is in the real life setting. And this is how the novel methodology comes into play, in my opinion, is using ecological momentary assessment to see their social interactions with the person or their immediate like geographical environment. That is, I'm a huge yeah. proponent of that methodology. Yeah, in my undergrad uh, research uh, lab, we used that uh, methodology a lot and actually Dr. Sarah Sperry now who recently just earned her degree in uh, clinical psychology is doing a lot of good work in that and looking at like impulsivity in real life and I mean especially with addiction just looking at that day-to-day -day and moment-to-moment behavioral changes could be super interesting and super important to developing those treatments. It's really important to kind of like expand our observations to evaluate those changes occurring yes. within and in between therapy sessions as well um, because it really allows us to kind of examine 
um, people's like influence of like social and geographic context on like substance use related behaviors. Um, so just like seeing what interactions they're having with people and those interactions, did it lead them to use substances or like what are the places that they frequented, uh, which might have had like more triggers uh, versus like another location that they frequented. Exactly. Yeah. And not only just asking the questions uh, moment to moment, but also even measuring like physiological changes in people's heart rate. Or uh, I know some people who even did uh, blood pressure and more complicated things that I was like, wow, how do you measure that on a person 24 seven? But it's just like a Fitbit kind of thing. You ask yeah, people yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, and and I think that's another thing, like there are so many cool methods to do those day-to-day momentary changes. Like I think qualitative uh, methodology is underrated in this regard, like diary method. I think that's a great way to document exactly what people are experiencing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge proponent for having self-reported data. And I think diary method, I'm always all for it. Um, yeah, obviously- digital diaries. Yeah. Um, yeah. And personally, for me, I'm really interested in incorporating cultural adaptations um, with these like treatment and interventions. And I truly believe that like technology, um, like you mentioned, digital diaries can be a huge proponent in helping us understand that cultural factors that influences use behaviors. And um, with my public health background, I'm very much of an advocate for using CBPR, which is community-based participatory research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then truly like getting data from the community versus like in a lab setting, um, I mm-hmm. think we can, as researchers and clinicians, we can learn a lot and also incorporate um, a lot of values, traditions, and customs within the way we approach these interventions. Exactly. Um, Definitely. Yeah, I I was going to say, I think that should be the general goal for most research that we're doing. I think we forget that we're drawing observations from the naturalistic setting And then whenever we test any theory out in the lab, I think it's important to remember that ideally we could, you know, apply it back to the naturalistic setting and have that work, Um, you know, whether it's for interventions or whatever. And even if for researchers who are not doing anything intervention related at all or behavior change related at all, I think it's important to keep in mind, like that should be the ideal goal, right? Like, I don't know if that's even a consensus. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me on that as well, but. I personally think it's important to keep that in mind. Oh, and also like tying back into like the VR virtual reality, it really allows researchers to kind of create and mimic that community um, environment, right? So um, if a researcher is interested in studying that in like more of a lab setting, virtual reality can also allow us to do that, um, I feel. And I'm really interested to see where that space will go. Oh, Maybe you could both talk more about this virtual reality because I don't know anything about it. Being a participant once, I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, <laughs> so tell me, how exactly does this work? Like if you were to design an experiment with VR, how would you do it? Wow, I I feel like I've mostly just read like some literature, uh, but that's that's an interesting question. How would I... I, so for me personally, something that I've been really interested in studying is kind of kind of goes back to that um, like influence of social and geographic context, right? Um, kind of like 
for instance, so like let's say within New York City or something, I'm interested in learning about how like the interactions between different neighborhoods, like geospatial information um, can contribute to these use patterns. So in virtual reality setting, mimicking different neighborhoods and allowing these participants to kind of like frequent where they go and learn about their, their behavior patterns, which kind of technically is in real life because you're doing it in virtual re reality, but not necessarily like out in the open, like in real life, if that makes sense. That so makes high simulation sense. or simulation. Wait, what's the word for? Yeah, simulation, simulation, simulating simulation. events and people, even social situations that may not be possible in real life, because having like fake people around you and sort of emulating mm -hmm. specific issues or situations that may lead someone to um, begin with uh, substance abuse or I don't know. I'm sort of guessing right now, but that's very interesting. I know that virtual reality is being applied to different aspects of clinical psychology like I know it's becoming a, a thing now in schizophrenia research as well so it's yeah really interesting. When, how, how do they use VR in schizophrenia research so specifically to look at like the negative symptoms of schizophrenia research so a lot of the times it's like people are struggling with negative affects and they struggle in social social situations so having that simulated social aspect can get people to be more comfortable in those situations and to practice those skills that may mm -hmm. uh, yeah so it's okay. sort of like a treatment option? Yeah, sort of like an intervention kind of thing. Okay, sorry. Yeah, you go. Also, like in, in the addiction science space, they specifically with alcohol use, they've mimicked like the, the bar environment in labs yeah. to kind of see how people drinking pattern changes within like a bar setting, but in the lab. So I think like virtual reality can really be leveraged to mimic that bar setting, but kind of be more elaborate um, mm. and also yeah. reduce cost, I think. So what equipment would you use? Do you just use like those goggles? Is, is that the common approach? Yeah, so I'm like not really um, well versed in the technical side of VR, but I'm assuming like it, it would just entail the goggles and I don't know what software you use to kind of mimic the settings, but I'm assuming the the software and then the goggles, but I'm sure I'm like butchering this and VR people out there are like, what is this girl talking about? No, no, no. You, I think that sounds completely correct. And it's still such a new and budding sort of uh, method, but I think it's going to become much more popular. Yeah. But also just like, also kind of going back, one of the things that I'm interested in doing, uh, which kind of ties in public health is um, photo voice which is essentially where like you know you take pictures and as the saying goes a picture speaks more than a thousand words and especially like in the adolescent or like younger population we're already using our phones all the time so really using technology where individuals with use patterns can take pictures and kind of like elaborate in a digital diary format of like you know what was the thought process during that moment in time where they were using and kind of like use pictures to kind of really like explore risk and protective factors like what might have exacerbated that pattern to let that led them to use substance versus like what might have protected them right and this right. can be really useful with BIPOC community where 
Um, if like, you know, English is not their first language, um, using pictures, it's universal. Hmm. So, so are we yeah. asking, are we asking people to document their daily lives with, uh, by taking photos? Or are we thinking of like actually going through their photo albums to see what they're documenting? No, intentionally taking photos to document their day and what they personally kind of going back to their self-reported data, right? Like what they think were factors that led to them using or what during the day led them to not use. Wow, that's so fascinating. Because so I, I like my guilty pleasure is a lot of those like vlogs, like a day in my life vlogs. I Girl, you're like- you're preaching to the <laughs> choir here. I I wait have wasted a lot of my life watching <laughs> vlogs. I am like embarrassed. You learn so much about just like stuff people do. And it's like, oh, I didn't think of that, but that's a great tip, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. I, um, in high school, I was very much into YouTube and so much so that I was like, wanted to be a YouTube influencer or whatever they call it nowadays. Um, my, my best friend and I actually created a YouTube channel. So there's like, three videos in the YouTube world where I'm doing like a clothing haul and um, oh nice yeah I will never say what the <laughs> channel is uh, but my partner sometimes just to piss me off he will just start playing that and I'm just like no oh. um but actually, so one of the things I'm kind of interested in dabbing is maybe doing like a YouTube channel once I start a grad program because you I think should. a lot of please do it oh my god yes we shall see I think the just like graduate school is still so like very novel in terms of like what actually a student does Mm -hmm. um and I think like also uh, providing more information to make it more accessible I think would be really helpful and there have recently there have been like a lot of great um students who have like created YouTube channels and done that realm but um I think the more the merrier and um I have a camera so it's it's pretty much there but not there okay it's gonna happen you've committed to it on this (laughs) podcast now so it's going to be a thing and we're expecting videos in the upcoming months because yeah it's seriously so important to have that as just representation on the screen and something that's easily accessible for people to look up um because I remember I was looking up videos and there's so little out there but the stuff that is out there sorry did you see one from uh by the CS PhD student in Canada I think I don't know. Okay. Yeah, no, but I should, I will look into that. But seriously, especially in the clinical or just psychology field, there are so many different aspects of um, the, yeah, the field in general that people can definitely talk about it as a whole and then also talk yeah. about their specific um, subfields that are interesting to them. So. Yeah. And also, yeah. I think like normalizing for um, future applicants to see that like people of different like backgrounds can also go to school. I've been very open about like my kind of like career trajectory and um, my my undergrad GPA, like I've mentioned, was really bad. It was like 2.7 because I've had to like deal with family issues during undergrad and like, you know, it it led me to not really focus. And because of like societal pressure, I pursued something that I was not passionate about. Um, and just like, you know, 
sharing my journey as someone who didn't like excel academically because I didn't really know what was right for me I think it would be helpful to kind of like you know put that perspective because a lot of the times in this field you hear about success stories but and not really um like the, the struggle things that, that you came across yeah and I'm very much of an advocate for talking about the struggles because like you know we're in a field where we want to humanize things and I feel like this whole application process is inhumane yes it is traumatic as people have mentioned several times before but that's why it's so nice having that community and having that psyching out community that you created with Emily mm-hmm. I mean it's so nice being able to just discuss those experiences and then now opening it up to current grad students and people who may have also graduated from PhDs or master's um, just so that they know their stories yeah. and knowing that applying multiple times is normal, having a low GPA is fine, and that should be normalized as something that you don't even have to explain yourself. Like, you don't have to explain why. I mean, life happens, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, when I when I was applying, I, and I was also telling, um, I forget who I was having a conversation, I have been in autopilot mode for, like, the past two years where, you know, I've been applying and, after getting rejected, you don't really have time to sit and feel your feelings and think about like what trauma you went through because you have to start preparing to apply again. Like you don't really have that time. Um, So I feel like I'm getting that brunt end of it now where my, and your body keeps score, right? So like I'm used to this trauma around this time of not getting into school and this year I did, but it really hasn't like hit me. So I keep vocalizing that, oh, I'm going to school to kind of like rewire my brain uh, to think like, girl, you don't have to like apply again and spend endless amount of hours researching. Um, And also partly because like, I'm very passionate about like, you know, making the field more accessible for the future applicants. Um, So I'm kind of like in it with them because I'm we will get rid of the GRE. Like I'm going to speak it out into the universe. And yes. I hope I hope that programs kind of like understand what trauma it puts individuals and like how inaccessible it is for a lot of disenfranchised and uh, marginalized populations. Exactly. It would be so interesting to actually have an ambulatory assessment study on applicants for uh, the psychology PhD and just seeing like their day-to-day suffering that they experience just so that we can have something empirical to present (laughs) to the... Um, uh, Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. So I, a lot of my ideas come in dreams. I'm very much of like a night owl. So my brain works the most sadly when we should be speaking so it'll be interesting how I'll be in grad school because you take classes during the day uh but so randomly I'm not sure if you guys remember the fmylife.com website oh there's an app for it though right oh is there I think so I was addicted to that app in high school (laughs) yeah so um for those who don't know what it is fmylife.com was essentially this like anonymous space where um, something like happened during your day um, where it made you go like F my life. Um, and they just like, you know, kind of like a digital diary, essentially, they kind of like type out what happened and just put it on the website. So I was envisioning that on our psyching out website, which isn't live yet, but having like an anonymous feed where people can submit 
um, like a digital diary excerpt where they talk about what they're feeling in that moment with especially with applications because I believe that like you know everyone in the field knows how inaccessible um, PhD programs are but they don't really understand because there's no faces and like voices behind it so I'm just envisioning this as like a live broadcast of the like the true feelings that people are going through and sadly to say like sometimes some people have had suicide um like ideation and so like one of the things that Emily did is create a survey to uh, to kind of see what applications look like because of COVID and um around I'm not sure if this is the right percentage but um if I remember correctly around 18 percent of individuals within psych and out group um sought uh, therapy because of applications like during the application cycle wow gosh yeah I mean just the amount of change that can be had and that can be done is monumental and I'm just waiting for something to change in the process I, I also just think I think it's important that like people like us that we take the space both yes. in the application cycle and also when we do become PhD students I think it's important that we take the space and be vocal about you know, when we're accepted, where we're applying, the fact that we are applying. And to be honest, like I didn't struggle like in the same way, I think in my application cycle, but I was questioned by like, you know, a lot of white males, just like multiple times. Like, are you really applying to PhDs? Are you sure about this? I don't think you can get in, et cetera. And when I did get my um, offer, I even had a white male question if I really did get the offer to PhD and not a master's program. He questioned me like three times on that. And um, yeah, I just wanna say like, you know, this is real. Like mm -hmm. as a person of color, as a minority, as a woman, as a member of the queer community, if, you, if people can identify you as being one of these marginalized community members, like the path is not going to be a struggle. Like you will face certain barriers. And I just think it's important to acknowledge that this is happening. But yeah. it does not mean that you cannot make it to a PhD or graduate with a PhD. My undergraduate, you know, mentor that I worked for is a woman and the PhD student I worked with um, is also a woman. And honestly, I've just had better experiences working with female scientists. And that motivated me to apply to pretty much like all female scientists when I did apply. Um, and I just want to say, you know, it's doable, you know, figure out what makes you most comfortable. I'm so sorry that you went through that and I'm glad that you're speaking out about it because I'm sure there's like X number of people who can relate to that story and which is why I'm also like a firm believer in like speaking our, speaking about our experiences. A um, couple of things to that point, one of the things that I've noticed when like researching programs to apply to, why is it that the DCT is always a white older male? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's actually Wait, hilarious. It's, it's, it's a very like glaring observation. And yeah. we all know psychology is a very female populated field. But then here we have where DCTs are these like white older males. Because people think gender equality is achieved by literally just increasing like people and not actually equalizing like different levels of like asking like who's in charge because if you look at who's actually getting promoted faster getting cited more times having a more of an impact getting accepted to high impact journals more 
if you look at those people, like, I'm sorry, I don't think they're women. I do not think they're minorities. I think they are overwhelmingly white men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, just, because go, just go on they, nature or science. Just take a brief scan of, like, the names. Yeah, and, like, you know, if we did, uh, like, a visual where we put the DCTs of all the programs just, like, with the pictures, I think it would be very eye-opening because like it would be right there smack in our face and the other thing that I always say which I call the circle of doom which is where essentially like you know we have these individuals in the field and there are marginalized and disenfranchised populations trying to get into the field and can't because the field is inaccessible the circle of doom kind of continues where people are recruiting the same kind of people right so X person recruits someone and that person oftentimes a cookie cutter of themselves and it just continues to be a circle of doom where more progressive and more like-minded people can't get into the field and oftentimes those are the individuals who are going to change the field right so we're we're just essentially in that circle of doom and um, one of the reasons I chose URI is they have a union um, a student union which I am going to learn more about and kind of infiltrate in, in our psyching out group so we can make this happen um, across all programs. And, you know, I'm very much of an advocate for unions um, and historically they've played such a huge role in, in different kinds of settings to really advocate for systemic and policy changes. Especially at the graduate student level. I mean, they are responsible for opening it up to more people who are from marginalized groups and especially during the times when only white male students were being accepted into programs so I mean it's very important and every program should have a union yeah and we just have to break the cycle because time has come where we need to change the field and like you know I always get the question like if you hate the field so much why are you going after it and I've had many people ask me throughout my application journey, like, why not a doctorate in public health? Uh, Why are you doing clinical psych? And I'm just like, why not? Just because you're a psychologist doesn't mean you can also be like an advocate. Yeah, it's also not true that other academic fields are somehow like more equal. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not true. We like public health is still a male oriented field. It's still very, like very much white males. Right. That this is this is a broader systemic problem. And if mm-hmm. we want to, you know, break the glass ceiling, we're going to have to be the people to just take our space, you know, whether go into computer science or philosophy, whatever field that is already male dominated or fields like clinical psychology, where it appears as if gender equality has been reached. But in reality, it has not been reached. Mm-hmm. We just have to take our space. Right. Yeah. And um one thing that I've been reflecting a lot recently, someone kind of uh, identified me as like a disruptor. And I was like really interested as to like why they, um, I first of all found it as a huge compliment. And I was thinking about like what, like what in my life kind of led to this, me being an advocate for changes, right? Um, my, as I mentioned earlier, my mom is the oldest of uh, four daughters and in India, gender-based biases is still very huge. Mm-hmm. And um, being the oldest grandchild, my parents took care of me my first five years. So like very formative years of my life. And um, I remember my aunts telling me how they used to make 
like people used to make fun of my grandparents because they had four daughters and they would kind of mock them to ask like oh who's going to take care of you when you get older you only have daughters um so I kind of like grew up with that mindset where my grandfather like helped raise me to have this like women can do anything um mindset and seeing where my mom and aunts kind of had to like break the grass ceiling my mom being the first to come to America and my other aunts being very highly educated one's a doctor and one holds like a higher position in in the academic institution um, and being like entrepreneurs. Um, So like having that growing up, I think really kind of contributed to me being very passionate about speaking out about truths and kind of advocating for changes to make things more accessible for individuals. Yeah, I mean, that just goes to show how important it is to have that representation, to have those people in your life who believe in you and to show you that you can make change. And going back to your point about how people were asking you, why are you in this field if you hate it so much? But we make these complaints and we make these, uh, we voice our concerns because we love this field and we want to see a change for the better. And we don't want to continue on this road when we know that it can can be better. We can love the research, but hate the inequalities. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I know. Um, know. Yeah, no, it's so crazy. I truly hope that I am, I am optimistic, especially with the kinds of individuals I'm seeing in Psychonaut. Uh, people are so passionate about making changes and I hope that like you know the future is going to reflect the kind of individuals that want to get into the field and um, one of the issues I think we've all seen in just like on Twitter like academic Twitter is this past cycle a lot of programs waived and eliminated the GRE so if we're able to do it then why not again right exactly Um, exactly so I mean but the whole question of like oh what are we going to use instead then like why not actually do a holistic review like you're saying like I understand it's a lot of work but like people are more than just the numbers right um and even like I don't know what the answer is like what can you use to assess individuals um like for instance even like getting experiences um in the workforce for psychology is is a privilege in itself um so I don't think that can also be a sole like predictor as to like getting into the field I think there needs to be a lot of work done and um people should really look at everything and look at every single person that applies a hundred percent. Thank you so much, Aura, for being on this episode and for speaking out on your research and your advocacy group and just for accepting to sit down here and take all these questions and, and answers. Uh, we really, really appreciate you being on here. And um, do you have any last words before we wrap it up? You tell us which school you're going to. Oh, I'm going to um, University of Rhode Island. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's just like last thoughts that I would say is um, just for like future applicants, um, just reflect and redirect um, is a term that I've been using a lot. And also you are exactly where you belong. Don't let the system make you think that you're not where you belong or that you're not for this field. 
um, just take some time to reflect and redirect as to how um, you can apply again and what changes that you can make, ask for feedback, reach out for support. Um, we're definitely all there for them and rooting for them. Thank you so much. And yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure.